0: Hello, this is Pat Lynch. Welcome to the Career Pathways podcast, Uh, coming to you from Lyon College in the glamorous Kilt Radio studio. I'm here with my co-host and producer extraordinaire Jason. Hi. Uh, Jason, as always, he's Managing the dials and, and uh, keeping the smiles, as they would say. Uh, today for our podcast, uh, we have Dr. Britt Florkowitz, professor of psychology. But you're going to find in, uh, in when uh, the interview, when you start talking to Britt, that her area of expertise, it goes so much deeper than just what you would think in terms of psychology. And we're going to let uh, Dr. Britt uh, talk to you about the fascinating work that she's doing. And we're pretty darn certain you're going to find this a really fascinating interview.
1: So stay tuned. We'll bring on Dr. Britt. This broadcast is sponsored in part by Lion College and also sponsored in part by Kilt Radio.
0: Well, hello. Hi. How are you, Britt? Now, Dr. Hey. Britt. 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 Dr. Yeah, Florkey, I've heard a whole bunch of names. Yeah. What what would be the name that uh, we, can, we can use right now?
2: Well, my students call me Dr. Florkey. Okay. But like you said, I go through plenty of names. Some people call me the Monkey Lady, the Chimp Lady, Dr. Well, Florkwitz. It goes on hold and all that thought, you know. So that <laughs> yeah,
0: so you know, I'm thinking of the Rolling Stone song, but, but or, you know, but that's what a boomer would do. But uh, I'll. Uh, Let's. We'll get to that in a moment. But uh, mm-hmm. Britt, well, thank you so much for being here.
2: Yeah, the thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. Uh,
0: your area of study it just is you know, for Jason. and I fascinates us. Just yep. you know, and well, can you kind of walk us through? You know, just your you know your, your yours in psychology. But I think when you start explaining what you do, <laughs> you, it becomes just so much more broad and. And encompassing it goes way beyond just what somebody would simplistically say is psychology. So we'd love to hear kind of that, you know, that overview of your area of expertise.
2: Yeah. So I'm currently an assistant professor in psychology, but the twister is that I have a B.A., M.A., and Ph.D. in anthropology and formal training in neuroscience, sociology, linguistics, biology, and it keeps going on and on and on. Um, so it's fascinating because there's a lot of people like me out there who study different facets of animal mm-hmm. behavior. But the fascinating thing is that we're not necessarily constrained to one discipline or you know one department, so to speak. Right. Rather, we end up in different places based on the research questions that we have, the topics of interest that right. we have. So ultimately, even though I started out in anthropology, I ended up making my way to psychology because my interests go far beyond the human experience and human behavior. It encompasses you know, lemurs, lorises, monkeys, apes, dogs, and cats now I've been doing a lot of research with. So it kind of feels like a great fit right now based on my research goals and my research topics, which I think if I had to choose a label right now, although that varies from day to day depending on what I'm working on, it would be comparative and evolutionary psychology.
0: <laughs> All right, now
2: to kind of take a step back. You're a young Brit. Okay, you're, like where are
0: you from and kind of what was your path to get you to comparative and evolutionary psychology today?
2: Yeah. So was born in New Jersey, raised right. in North Carolina. I did my undergraduate degree at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Now, at the time, when I went to pursue my undergraduate degree, which ultimately ended up being anthropology, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do at the time. Uh, When I was applying for undergraduate positions at different universities, I put on my application that I wanted to do marine biology, because at the time, I was volunteering at an aquarium. My cousin was doing marine biology. But the reality was I was thinking about different kinds of potential career opportunities, like being a tattoo artist and a piercer, thinking about computer science and design. So my interests were all over the place. So I kind of just wrote down marine biology because it made sense at the time and I just went for it. Um, It wasn't until I'm pretty sure it was my sophomore, late sophomore, early junior year where I took a course in biological anthropology that focused on primate behavior. Mm-hmm. And after that point in time, I just had such a deep fascination with primate communication more specifically that I just pursued it until I got to this point today where I continue to study that topic. Oh, fascinating.
0: Yeah, that, and then how, how did the crossover to teaching <laughs> psychology take place?
2: Yeah. So Throughout my career, I've been mostly in anthropology, mm-hmm. although I want to say during my master's degree, I started working with a wide variety of psychologists, some from the US, some from Germany and right. the United Kingdom, and I started to gain an interest in studying not only non-human primates at the time, it was mostly chimpanzees and gibbons, but focusing on other mammals beyond the primates. and. At that point in time, I realized that because I was starting to expand outwards away from the human experience, that anthropology, while it gave me a lot of valuable tools and skills needed to do the work that I do today, psychology became a better fit for me in the long run. Um, So it kind of felt like a natural growing process, Mm -hmm. growing into this current place and time through these different transformative experiences I've had throughout my graduate education. Uh, anthropology
0: is, uh, is kind of like the study of cultures mm-hmm. and people, and and, and anthropologists tend to place themselves in, that, in the in like the natural habitat, it, it, you know. Like, it, and that uh, is that kind of what you did as an anthropologist—that you would like like Jane Goodall, we were talking about, you know, like actually mm-hmm. living with the the chimps. I mean, was that the same approach you took to anthropology?
2: Yeah, so my research questions were mainly focused on understanding how human language evolved Mm -hmm. and how we can gain insight into that evolutionary process by studying our closest living relatives, the non-human primates. So in order to address that research question, I started working with a wide variety of primate species that share a close relationship to us, such as gibbons. Mm -hmm. Um, I used to work and do research at the Gibbon Conservation Center, And then I also did a lot of research at the Los Angeles Zoo with their troop of chimpanzees there. So every day I would go and observe these animals with the goal of studying their communication systems and seeing how similar to or different are they from what we use on a daily basis when it comes to human language and other types of communication like facial expressions and manual gestures.
0: What... what? What would be learned as far as language, you know, the language as far as how it's evolved? it's that, cool. fascinating.
2: Yeah, and that's going to be ultimately the, the main goal of my research talk on Friday with the faculty yeah. colloquium. So to try to condense this into like a few minutes or so. Um, I'll
0: surprised than Friday when I listen.
2: Yeah, you're so. going to know everything now. <laughs> you're going to be all tuned into it. Yeah. yeah. So when it comes to the evolution of language, it's not something that just spontaneously appeared at one point in time in you know evolutionary history. Rather, with most behavioral and anatomical features, they're subject to natural selection, which means that every generation you have new features that are then tinkered upon. And then in future subsequent generations, you have different character- characters or traits that are going to be subject to different selective pressures. So change happens gradually over time. And it seems like human language is also subject to that natural selection, that evolutionary force as well. So the question is, well, how old exactly is human language? And what are some of the key properties that were needed for this kind of complex form of communication to evolve? Because if you look around the animal kingdom, there's cool forms of communication, but some argue that it's not nearly as complex as what we see with human languages. So. You know, what properties have been slowly evolving over time? What makes human language unique? What makes it similar to other forms of communication? Mm-hmm. So with my work with chimpanzees, I started studying their facial expressions and their manual gestures, because at one point in time, the prevalent idea was that gestures, so like high fives, hugs, you know, waving. Middle finger. Yeah, yeah, that too. <laughs> right? Those are all intentional and flexible forms of communication where they can take on different meanings depending on the context. So waving hello is different than waving goodbye, for Mm -hmm. example. Um, And you're producing that kind of bodily movement to deliberately communicate something to someone in order to achieve a goal. So a lot of people were arguing that, well, we see evidence of similar kinds of manual gesturing in great apes like chimpanzees, orangutans, gorillas, and bonobos. Uh, So maybe this form of gestural communication paved the way for the evolution of human language. It Mm -hmm. ended up being something that was more manual in form, but then eventually jumped to a vocal domain when it comes to humans. But the interesting thing was that no one was talking about facial expressions and when you look at humans when you look at other primates we use a combination of all of those things to communicate we're producing manual gestures as we speak to emphasize certain points over others we use facial expressions like raising our eyebrows you know smiling to communicate our excitement about a topic along with the words that we're actually uttering so Everyone was focusing a lot on manual gestures, but not on these facial expressions. And when I asked my colleagues, well, why is this the case? Because clearly we see lots of primates, including humans, produce these very complex facial expressions. Their response was, well, facial expressions, they're spontaneous and inflexible. You can't control them. They correspond to very particular emotion states, So as a result, it doesn't seem like they're likely to be a candidate for properties associated with the evolution of language, because on one hand, you have these facial expressions that are spontaneous, but manual gestures that are intentional. You have facial expressions that, you know, correspond to very strict emotional states, Mm -hmm. and then gestures take on a host of different meaning depending on that context. So I wanted to see whether or not that was actually the case, because at that point in time, there was no research on this topic. Mm-hmm. So that was pretty much the focus of my entire dissertation. And it turns out chimpanzees do produce facial gestures. Their facial expressions take on those gesture properties. And up until this point, we thought these were two mutually exclusive systems, but they're actually one and the same. So that means one of two things. Either we need to include facial expressions when we're trying to search for the evolutionary roots of human language, or we need to think about a multi-step model. Did facial gesturing, uh, as I call it, come first? Then we have manual gesturing, then we have language, or is there other types of processes that come in between uh, those types of communication and that,
0: systems? The, the, the research or the answer that's still forthcoming that's more to more to follow
2: yeah and that's the current focus of my research here with students at lyon college we're trying to see if other primate species outside of chimpanzees and humans do produce these facial gestures Mm -hmm. and as you can imagine species that are much older in terms of the evolutionary relationship they have with humans if they're producing these facial gestures that means the properties associated with human language have been evolving gradually over millions of years, maybe up to 55 million years ago, depending on which primates exhibit these properties. So, oh, OK.
1: Um, so from <laughs> your perspective, let's yeah. say, why do you think that um, humans, uh, as a species, why all that time, like that long time ago, why we, like, how did we get so far, uh, like in our, like vocally, how did we evolve the language more than like a chimpanzee or something like that? like what is there like a difference in the brain structure or something that, that caused us to go a different route than them, like uh, have a more vocal uh, like form of communication?
2: Mm-hmm. That's an excellent question. It's actually been one of the top research questions in the field for a while. Um, so the answer is it seems to be a combination of both anatomical constraints, but also cognitive constraints as well. Um, so the vocal apparatus of chimpanzees looks very different from that of humans even if they were capable of producing you know cognitively speaking human language or other kinds of language like systems they wouldn't be able to produce the same kinds of utterances as we do but on the other hand even if they did have that anatomy it does seem like there are cognitive differences underpinning the ability to use language like systems or not so take for example enculturated apes as we call them so thinking about Kanzi the Bonobo and Coco the gorilla who are taught to use sign language or you know picture uh, guides and books to communicate with their keepers. You'll notice that they tend to communicate about imperative requests, right? So like feed me now. I want banana things that are happening in the present. But they don't create new words. They stick with what they know. And they always talk about things that are happening in the present. They don't really communicate with us about the past or the future. So it does seem like there are cognitive limitations when it comes to these more complex forms of communication that we see in humans.
1: Yeah, because I know there's something like the cognitive trade-off or whatever. Like, Mm -hmm. what what exactly is like that? Like the cognitive trade-off? Is that like where essentially they have like a a pattern-seeking brain and we have a less pattern-seeking brain or something like that in exchange for some people think that that's why they chose that route so they could remember things like what they see more like mm-hmm. in real time while we have this more like um, we, we trade it off so we could have language and communication and have that deeper like understanding of our past and ourselves mm-hmm. I guess.
2: So it's a combination of two things the first thing being socio-ecological variables mm-hmm. that are kind of imposed upon a species and the second thing being the unique social environment that humans have. Mm-hmm. So the first one being that Each species has its own very unique social environment and ecological environment, different types of obstacles that they need to overcome, and there's corresponding adaptations that help them overcome said environmental or social obstacles. So you can imagine the obstacles that great apes such as chimpanzees faced are different than those that humans face because they're unique social organization. So chimps tend to live in troops of anywhere from a couple of dozen individuals to hundreds of individuals. They have a fission-fusion social structure. And usually when it comes to communicating about imperative requests, it's a lot about in the now. So things like forming a hunting party now, getting to a termite mound and creating tools now, and so forth. So their communicative style is shaped by those socio-ecological variables. Now in comes humans. We have a very unique social structure, which has sometimes been referred to as hyper-sociality. We're very tolerant of others, right? Um, Take, for example, sitting in a classroom. For a safe class, you don't know anybody in the class. Chances are you're just going to sit. You're going to look around the room. You're going to wait for the professor to come in. You do that with chimpanzees, and it's a fight. It's a brawl, right?
0: But they're trained to perceive that as there's all this potential danger. Someone's Mm -hmm. going to attack them, and that's... Like yeah. That, sur- that survival instinct. Very there,
2: territorial so. species. Yeah. yeah. So chimpanzees in that situation, they're very defensive yeah. because of that, you know, territory marker that they're trying yeah. to protect. So you can imagine that humans having this more tolerant social structure mm-hmm. and organization where we do lots of collaboration to get cumulative cultural mm-hmm. innovation. You can imagine the communication systems that have evolved to facilitate that are a little bit different in yeah. that case. You
0: know, when you were talking about the evolution of language through facial expressions, uh, I know, like a, you know, in like my consulting experience before coming to Lion, that we would work with people on all kinds of nonverbal communication, and mm-hmm. and it was interesting that there was one test that we would use for, to measure emotional intelligence. And it, and we would use a bunch of different people with different facial expressions and see how accurately the person could read Mm. that this person's concerned, this person's annoyed, this person's sad, this person's happy, you know. And it seems simplistic, but they weren't like overly, overly so, and, and it was, and highly emotionally or emotionally intelligent people were able to pick the, up those cues. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the ones that where I made my money were the ones who were, were <laughs> <laughs> who just, I mean, they, they were crashing and burning and they just could not uh, yeah. read those signs. And I guess that's just, you know, in a modern day way of just how evolution has taken us to where we are today when it comes to nonverbal communication.
2: Yeah, so I mean... It's a combination of things that drives facial expressivity. Mm -hmm. On one hand, you have the emotional aspect. So the research that I do doesn't really necessarily state that facial expressions can't be emotional. Mm -hmm. It's just that facial expressions can be other things, too. Um, so when it comes to people doing, and that's what we refer to as the mind in the eyes task where you just get the eyes of yep, a particular, yep. exactly, yeah. yeah, and you look at those eyes and just using the eyes alone, you try to discern what that person is experiencing using those facial muscle mm-hmm. movements. So on one hand, it makes sense that evolution would favor certain kinds of discrete signals where it's very clear what the meaning is and it's clear what the behavioral outcomes are and how you can respond to that. So when someone is feeling happy, for example, by seeing that facial expression associated with happiness, you have a good sense of how that person's going to respond, how they're going to act, and then how you can modify your behavior based on what they plan on doing. Yes. But also, on the flip side, some people might struggle with those types of tasks because there is flexibility, Right. So a lot of recent studies have come out and shown that facial expressions of emotion, there's a genetic component and a learning component as well. So facial expressions associated with anger and sadness, there's a lot of cross-cultural variability. So if you have someone that is coming from culture A, that has a standard set of facial expressions that correspond to all these different emotional correlates, coming to a new area and having to discern these different kinds of signals, it's going to be a little bit more difficult in those cases. Um, there's also some familial effects too. So the facial expressions of your family members will also influence the kinds of facial expressions that you produce in the future. Okay. Big, the big question. Yeah. Okay. <laughs>
0: Psycho- here, field of study is psychology focused on I'll call. i call it animal behavior primates. Yeah. How does that relate to psychology and what most of us would consider a study of human behavior? Mm-hmm. So, what do what do we learn, or what, what have you learned, you know, in your field of study that would you know would then correlate to? Okay, here is what we know with humans. I you kind of said language, the yeah. formation of language is one thing, which is really fascinating, but what else can we learn?
2: So in terms of stepping away from evolutionary explanations of behavior and more proximate level explanations and applications of what I do. Um, So oftentimes when I'm doing my research, typically at zoos or conservation centers or sanctuaries, a lot of my work is used to help train volunteers and interns in terms of how to navigate relationships and interactions they have with primates. Um, because one of the interesting things is that when it comes to everyday people walking out on the street, maybe haven't heard of primatology or animal behavior, field of study, what's interesting is that when you put them in the lab and you show them video clips of primates interacting, they are excellent at discerning the meaning of manual gestures, because, for example, an embrace by chimpanzees is affiliative and an embrace by humans is affiliative. So there's a lot of evolutionary um, continuity in those signals. What people struggle the most with are facial expressions that primates mm. produce. So take, for example, classic human smile. Typically, what ends up happening is the corners of your lips are pulled backwards and you show both rows of teeth. Something like this. But I'm doing a terrible job because it's a fake smile. But, you know, <laughs> now it's a real one. There <laughs> yeah, yeah, go so what ends up happening there is that you know you have this human experience of oh this is a smile it means happiness this is what it looks like and then oftentimes in settings where you interact with animals you try to like with manual gestures apply that to them when it comes to primates when you see this sort of smile looking signal it actually means they're terrified for their lives it's a silent bared teeth display as we call it And it's produced when an individual is being submissive to a higher ranking individual that is threatening aggression, agonism towards that particular individual or the social group. So it means something completely different. So what I end up doing is while I'm studying the evolutionary roots of human language, I'm also looking at what these signals mean in these proximate level social interactions. And then that information is used to train caregivers that, hey, if you see this facial expression, you need to run. If you mm-hmm. see this facial expression, you're probably fine in different ways to respond yes, appropriately right. to there those
1: things. Like, um, are there any expressions that are similar to humans? Like, like, I know, like, surprise, so let's like, say, like, like, you know, like, you get a circular mouth. Is there anything like that, that yeah. like that that's close yeah. to humans? Like, they have some. So, so, so like, the smile is different, different but, but there are some, some that they share.
2: Yes, yeah. So the one that's the most widespread and has been the most studied is laughter Mm -hmm. so human laughter kind of looks like smiling but the mouth tends to be open the jaw is stretched a little bit further in cases of laughing and sometimes you get the lip corner puller other times not so much now this the laughter of humans looks very similar to the what we call play faces of non-human primates same configuration very similar meaning and the fascinating thing is that we're learning that with non-human primates they can modify that display based on the intensity of play bouts that they engage in. So when a infant chimpanzee, for example, is producing a play face and, you know, they're laughing, so to speak, rolling around on the ground, having a good time, what they tend to do is modify the intensity or how much the jaw is stretched or relaxed to communicate, hey, I want to increase the intensity of play. I like this. We should keep going. Or, hey, this is a little intense for me. Maybe we should pull back a little bit. Um, so we do see similarities in those kinds of facial signals when it comes to both humans and primates. It's just not all of them are going to be the same. Yeah. The, in looking at
0: it, like correlations with animal behavior and human behavior, <laughs> it would like with chimpanzees say uh, would would like like infants maybe like like children two or are younger where they're not. You know, their language isn't fully developed, and uh, and there's, so, there's they're they're going to their their communication is going to be you know like crying, screaming, you know, just all the <laughs> all you know, all the. Um, you know, this is a parent, you know, that, that, that my my daughter's long grown, but she put me through all the all of that. But uh, but is, is it kind, kind of like uh, where you could see more closer? Uh, correlations with human behavior at at, young, at the younger ages?
2: Yeah, there's been a lot of studies that have taken this comparative approach yeah. between human infants and younger or even older chimpanzees right. to kind of see what similarities mm-hmm. exist, not just with developmental milestones, but also communicative strategies throughout the lifespan. Um, and the interesting thing is that we see that the modalities as a whole, right? So using facial expressions and using manual gestures are important. But again, it seems like there's differences in the typings. So one thing that humans do, especially infants, is that when they want to get your attention to look at something or for you to grab them something off a shelf or what have you, they'll point, right? But chimpanzees are terrible at pointing, right? They don't do pointing. And when you point towards something in the enclosure and even right in front of them, they won't look at it. So it seems like there are certain signals that are exclusive to one species versus another, which is likely due to this very unique socioecology. Humans are very dependent on others, especially young children. They need a lot of social input on the early stages of development. So being able to communicate with caregivers, hey, I think that's interesting, or hey, I need that, is really important. And chimpanzees have similar developmental milestones, but at very different time frames because they only live to be about 50 years, you know, in mm-hmm. captivity mm-hmm. when conditions are right. So can you
1: teach them to like, understand those? Yeah. Like, like if you, if you just, just took them from when they like really like, young, you know, mm-hmm. and then just taught them like all the human stuff, would they still kind of pick up? up is, is there like a cognitive thing where they pick up still like the, the regular climbing stuff, stuff and the human <laughs> stuff? Or is it, or is it kind of, they only understand human stuff?
2: So they will pick up on pointing if you train them early on. So like with the enculturated apes, they use pointing to point to different symbols and figures to communicate with their caregivers. Mm -hmm. There's been some studies where they've taken chimpanzees and tried to rear them in the exact same environment as children. So putting them through school, making them wear clothes. But at the end of the day, there's going to be a limitation there. They don't pick up language. They don't pick up all these complex gestures that humans do. Um, it seems like they developed their very own communicative system, and that's probably due to cognitive constraints. So we do see and you'll see on YouTube, for example, if you Google it, like there will be some instances of chimpanzees pointing um, to get mostly at like candy and Diet Coke and stuff, things they're not supposed to have. But for the most part, be- it's because those apes have been trained to do that at an early age. It's not something they naturally require, so to speak. Uh, can
0: I can talk, talk, talk to the spot about your your current work, you're doing work at the Little Rock mm-hmm. Zoo, and then I know you've, you've, you're you doing some research projects here on campus as well.
2: Yeah. So I'm involved in a couple of different kinds of research mm-hmm. projects. The main research project is looking at monkey facial gestures, and most of the data I've been collecting has been at the Little Rock Zoo because it's close proximity, and it's a great opportunity to bring students from Lyon College over there. So. For example my primate perspectives on behavior in the brain course we took a field trip one day we went to the lorak zoo we saw the primates they actually got to collect and code data in real time with the primates so it's a great hands-on experience Um, so i've been doing a lot of work over there mostly with their monkey species although they have a fantastic chimpanzee and orangutan enclosure too definitely have to check it out Um, but in addition to that i have a lot of collaborations because primate behavior and studying, you know, the different communicative strategies. You need a lot of recordings, you need a lot of samples to work through. Um, so in addition to that, I have active collaborations with the Los Angeles Zoo Still, the Gibbon Conservation Center. Chimfunchi Wildlife Orphanage, um, which is in Central Africa, and it's home to chimpanzees who are victims of the bushmeat trade, um, the illegal pet industry, biomedical industry that are being rescued and placed into a more semi-natural enclosure um, with caregiver guidance and attention and also been working um, with lots of researchers all over the globe to try to figure out different facets of primate communication as well but little rock Sioux is ah. my current focus
0: now here on campus like last summer were you uh you were involved with canine research, right?
2: Yes. Oh, yes. Um,
0: Let's not forget the dogs. Yeah, yeah. I know. and the cats, too. <laughs> the yeah. cats.
2: Yeah. yeah. So in addition to the primate stuff yeah. that I do, um, I had a student, Alexis McKenzie. She mm-hmm. was here. She transferred to Tennessee. Right. She owns dog-wolf hybrids. Right. And the interesting thing is that we have a lot of research on dog facial expressions. We have a lot of research on wolf facial expressions, but not on dog-wolf hybrid expressions. And because... They're so prevalent in society as pets, and also you're starting to see them pop up in conservation and sanctuaries because people will adopt them as pets, realize they're a handful and then retire them or, you know, uh, relinquish them to these different conservation centers. We need to better understand their communicative strategies and how that can enhance um, sanctuary and conservation protocols to provide them the best care possible. So I'm still doing research with her, even though she lives in Tennessee. She just moved her dogs over there. Yeah, I um, remember
0: play, and connecting you guys. You know, so yeah. Now, does Woof have multiple meetings? or uh,
2: <laughs>
0: bad dog humor. Yeah. Wrong, wrong time and place, Woof.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, we're still in the preliminary stages right. of collecting data. But the thing that she's noticed since starting this project is that The dog-wolf hybrids, depending on the proportion of dog and wolf DNA they have, there's different uh, communicative strategies that they employ. So, for example, her dog-wolf hybrids, they make a lot of use of facial expressions along with vocalizations like bark, wolf, and also tail position and her other dogs that have less wolf DNA within them, she's been noticing that they tend to, you know, be less expressive in terms of their face, but they rely a lot on gestural behavior and positional behavior. Wow. So, yeah, we're we're currently doing a comparative study there. Uh, in addition you to know, the primate I, stuff,
0: just even, you know, I I guess maybe it's because you know being uh, like a cat person my whole life, I never real no, <laughs> I never realized the amount of dog. Wolf, uh, you know, cr- you know, like uh, hybrids, if you will, uh, that, that yeah. are prevalent,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and that's just naturally evolved over the, uh, over the years.
2: Well, it seems like dogs and wolves have gone on their separate evolutionary trajectories. Dogs, especially, because of artificial selection, people right. selecting certain kinds of characteristics mm-hmm. within them to be able to do these different tasks and also to be companion animals. It seems like. Their facial mobility has been shaped in very unique ways that are different from wolves. So, for example, domesticated dogs, you'll notice that some of them have these tiny little eyebrows right over here. Mm-hmm. They can actually raise those and move those around, but wolves have trouble doing that because they don't have those muscle connections underneath. But they can the skin. still like mate
1: together, like they're even though they're even though they're completely down different. Ep- now, can you do the same thing with cats? Like, could you take uh, <laughs> could you take a jaguar in some sort of cat that's a close ancestor to it, like a I don't
2: know, is a bobcat closer to a jaguar in like well,
1: there's, evolutionary chain?
2: There are certain kinds of wildcats, as we call mm-hmm. them, that are closely related to domestic cats. So, mm-hmm. um, Felis sylvestris catus is the current scientific name of domesticated cats. There's other members of caddis sylvestris um, that could potentially crossbreed with um, domesticated cats. So, Norwegian forest cats, great example of that. There's forest cats all around the globe. So, you can mm-hmm. imagine. Similar situations might be happening, but the sad thing is, is that compare it, and this can be really sad for you, right? Compared to dogs and wolves, we know even less about, about cats. cats. Yeah. yeah, But the good news From is spirits. we're fixing that now because, right. um, fingers crossed, we have a paper in review um, that looks at the different communicative strategies that cats use when communicating with one another compared to how they communicate with humans regarding mm-hmm. facial expressions.
0: There, there's going to be a student listening and they and they they want to be you know follow your career path you know and you you have a unique one to get <laughs> you no to get you to where you are today yeah. what would you recommend for a, a student that would want to get and let like, I'll read a comparative and an evolutionary psychology it's like okay this is it you know I have that epiphany you know this I, I really yeah. want to pursue this what recommendation would you give that. young person?
2: Yeah, so the biggest recommendation I think I would have is to try to get as much hands-on experience as possible, right? Um, You can kind of see this being reflected in just applying to graduate school, applying to different jobs, A degree is important but a degree is not a label it's a accumulation of experiences that you've gathered during undergrad that allow you to pursue these different pathways and to learn future skills um, that you need in order to do the kind of work you want to do Um, so for students i would say you know find someone that loves animals find someone that's doing animal research and start working with them do internships or volunteer opportunities at the little rock zoo or at conservation centers or sanctuaries get a lot of hands-on experience because chances are when you start interacting with the animals in these capacities, you'll start to develop natural research questions, right? So for example, I study facial expressions, which is pretty unique. Like it's a very niche field. There's only so many facial expression researchers in the U.S. when it comes to non-human animals. Um, But I formed those interests because I started working with the primates and I saw the way they were using their faces. And I thought, huh, This looks very interesting. Some of these things look similar to what we're doing, and then other things look different. So that kind of pushed me to pursue a career in animal behavior doing research. So I'm really thankful and grateful for those experiences. And I think those will help students in the future, too, when it comes to figuring out your career path, not just with questions, but also species you want to work with. Um, So fun fact, I study non-human primates, but I'm allergic to some of them. And I found that out only by volunteering at the Duke Lemur Center, Mm -hmm. where I unfortunately learned that I'm deathly allergic lemurs. Uh, So I had to unfortunately... dander
0: or whatever it is. Yeah. yeah.
2: It felt very similar to koala hair. Um, It was very dense. That was going to be my answer. So you're
1: allergic to just the hair or is it like something in the hair? I
2: think it's the dander and the hair because um, it was interesting when I was there, we weren't allowed to touch the lemurs, but Mm -hmm. I would go into the enclosures and they would jump on my back. And every time they would jump on my back and touch the back of my neck, they would try to steal my car keys and stuff they would be rummaging all around every time I'd go in I would have difficulty breathing I'd break out in hives so yeah yeah. and I thought maybe after Mm -hmm. a little bit of time I revisited the idea of studying lemurs in you know my master's program and I just had a really bad reaction again and again and again so I realized okay I can work with primates just not strepturines it has to be haplorines so you can kind of figure out you know what your key species are going to be if that's something that you want to focus on. If you want to study dogs or cats, you know, getting the experience with those species is going to be critical. The,
0: for students, then, you know, to kind of ultimately end up in the field of study that that you're at, it's there's really not like a, a one path, no. is there? They, they can, like your path was unique through anthropology to arrive at psychology but they could yeah they could do the same thing but they could do their other paths could not they would the
1: anthropology path be better if you Mm -hmm. wanted to work on more like hands-on of of primates or would you still say go for so like a psychology degree more so in that like which one would be a better fit overall
2: i think the fit depends on the topics of interest the species of interest and what tools you need in order to get that work done for me, it made sense going through anthropology because part of studying the human experience, which is anthropology, with biological anthropology, in order to understand humans, you should study the closest living relatives of humans to see what makes us unique, what makes us similar and so forth, the non-human primates. But while that was terrific experience and I have gotten a lot of skills, tools and techniques in order to do the work I do. Ultimately, I wanted to branch out beyond that with dogs, cats, wolves, and so forth. So it made sense to pivot towards psychology and especially because I'm interested in evolutionary questions, which tends to be in the field of evolutionary psychology. How do certain kinds of behaviors evolve? And then you take a comparative approach, which is comparative psychology, to kind of understand that evolutionary history and trajectory.
0: Okay. Uh, You have students with... Uh, following this uh, field of study, what career options uh, opportunities are yeah. there out there? What kind of jobs that uh, you know that you know? I have I have to do my career services. Duty, so I have to <laughs> Absolutely. That, but, but what what opportunities would would there be?
2: Yeah, there's tons of opportunities. Yeah. Um, it's fascinating because I think a lot of people see what I do and think, oh, you can only be a professor and that's it. But it I'm actually one of very few professors. Most animal behaviorists go into dramatically different fields. Like, for example, a lot of people I used to work with now are at zoos, conservation centers, or sanctuaries. One of my friends who's an animal behaviorist, she runs a cat sanctuary um, up north. And, you know, she uses a lot of the skills that she's picked up during her graduate education in order to take good care of those cats that are being, you know, rescued and surrendered. Not Tiger King. Not Tiger King. (laughs) Although I do have a student who was animal behavior, and now she works on leopard reproductive strategies. Yeah, so... Big shifts sometimes. Is there a problem
0: in in them uh, reproducing? I know like pandas is Mm -hmm. well-known.
2: It's mostly for conservation efforts and diversity. Sometimes when the size of a population of a given species shrinks, Mm -hmm. you have problems with genetic diversity, lots Mm -hmm. of inbreeding that has to Mm -hmm. happen in order. So she's studying that process to see what the current genetic diversity looks like in big cats. So, yeah, you can imagine it was a lot of anthropology and psychology for her But now she's doing a lot of biology, chemistry, neuroscience to get that research done. So So if somebody
1: wanted to go, if somebody wanted to go like your route where you're teaching and you're doing like research stuff, would you say that that's the most optimal route? Like would you say that you you would think that people want to also teach if they have that kind of passion for it, is that the best route to go? Or would you just say try to focus on one thing or...
2: Yeah, I a lot of animal behaviorists, we get jobs in anthropology departments, psychology departments. I have a friend in a sociology department, uh, neuroscience departments, biology departments. We're pretty much everywhere, right? Um, it's mostly based on what our research questions look like. So for me, I use a lot of non-invasive research methods. So I go to the zoo. I hang out with the monkeys but there's a glass between me and the primates that i work with i'm just trying to observe their behavior in a very natural state what they do on a daily basis i don't go in there i don't take blood samples i don't do evasive work i don't do you know cognitive paradigms and experimental paradigms it's just a very observational approach so that works for the field that i'm in and the field that i'm currently in which is psychology and also with those anthropology skills i've acquired you know that helps me do that behavioral observation research but if you're interested in genetic diversity of primates or big cats, right, then chances are pursuing a career in biology or chemistry or neuroscience makes a lot of sense. And when it comes to being a professor, having a graduate degree is going to be really crucial and getting teaching experience early on is also going to be very helpful. So it's kind of a given if you want to be a professor and focus in animal behavior, you're going to have to pursue those higher level degrees. Oh,
0: that's Fascinating stuff.
2: Well, thank, thank you. you. Yeah, you know thank you.
0: Uh, <laughs> any any uh, last <laughs> questions, Jason? Well,
1: the only last question I have, it doesn't This, even is, this is always, always the, the zinger. <laughs> yeah. <Cool>. Well, okay, <laughs> so this doesn't pertain to necessarily cruise but my biggest question when it comes, because you're like primate-focused, how come we don't see any primates more so in the West, like in the Northern Hemisphere? Like, is it just because of the climate that it's in? Because I know, like, there are a few places in- like Florida for example where you would think that, that maybe there could possibly mm-hmm. be like a primate species that could could have lived there but how come they're all like over in Africa China places like that like that's where we mm-hmm. see like gorillas and all that stuff how come they how come there's not more of them over like in the places that they aren't mm-hmm. because they can live in this type of climate can they can
2: yeah so we definitely have instances where You know, primates that are kept as pets, like Mm -hmm. rhesus macaques, they're released in Florida, actually, Mm -hmm. and also South Carolina. And they thrive just Mm -hmm. fine um, because they're generalists. They eat pretty much anything that you give them, and they're great at navigating new climates. But when it comes to the evolutionary history and why we have certain restrictions when it comes to where species are located, there's been a lot of adaptive radiations of Mm -hmm. primate species starting at 64 million years ago. These different climate shifts result in new environmental niches and primates will be able to exploit those new niches. They have different behavioral and anatomical adaptations to thrive there. But also the unfortunate part is that as the climate changes, while some environmental niches open, others close. And that means we do get extinction events that go along with those adaptive radiations. So take, for example, great apes. There used to be dozens upon dozens of great ape species in the fossil record, and now we have very few that are alive today because of that process of radiation and extinction that goes hand in hand, unfortunately. Now, the fascinating thing is that if you look at the geographic diversity when it comes to new world monkeys, so we're thinking like capuchin monkeys, Marmosets, the world's smallest monkey, they're literally like a few inches tall, the size of your hand. Um, A lot of them live in South America because of their very unique environmental history. You'll notice that you don't see New World monkeys anywhere else in the world except South America. And one idea is that way long ago, a group of New World monkeys made their way over to the South American continent, either through a land bridge or they got caught during a storm in some vegetation. They made their way to South America. And then they were doing really well in the environment, and then their population expanded. And then the other members of the New World monkey species, you know, started to decline in other parts of the world. Because even humans aren't native
1: to to the Americas. Yeah. We're technically from, like, the Africa region, if you're going by evolution, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: And one of the things that humans have that make us so great at just being able to occupy very unique environments from, like, the Arctic to the Antarctic... Is cumulative cultural innovation, mm-hmm. right? So we're able to develop new tools and techniques to thrive in some of the harshest environments. That's we got gotten. to the
1: we up and then went across that land bridge or whatever mm-hmm. that was from Alaska to Russia. They were no land, yep. Right?
2: yep. And unfortunately, we do see a lot of cool innovation in non human primates' tool use, but it's not this rationing effect that you see with humans where every generation we generate new knowledge and then pass that knowledge on and that knowledge is added upon each generation it tends to kind of stop at each generation with non-human primates unfortunately so
0: yeah well fascinating <laughs> stuff we're, no we're at, you know uh, thank yeah. you so much yeah uh, this, uh, you know, uh, this is going to wrap up. it up for the career pathways uh, podcast uh, once again thanks to Dr. Britt Jason any final last
1: words no I'm good
0: and podcast just follow us wherever you get your podcast if uh you're listening to it the first time you know please go and uh, and click like and follow us
1: make sure to leave a review
0: and jason as jason said make sure to leave that review you know it's just five stars and thank you so much
1: Lyon College, a selective undergraduate liberal arts college located in the thriving metropolis of Batesville, Arkansas, is frequently recognized as one of the top liberal arts colleges in the nation. Lyon is ranked as a nationwide top college by Forbes, a best southeastern college by the Princeton Review, best bang for the buck college, and the most socially beneficial college in Arkansas by the Washington Monthly. Anything is possible at Lyon, with the college's award-winning faculty, Scottish Heritage, Highly competitive athletics, outstanding education and adventure program, many campus groups and activities, beautiful historic settings, unique honors and social codes. Students can take charge of their own future.